Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back again uh, with the chapel family. Thank you for Pastor Nathan and the council inviting me uh, to bring the word again. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 12 verses this morning of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, uh, but God's word endures forever. Uh, over the last few years, I've been increasingly drawn back to the opening verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes. I'm convinced that these really incredible verses just don't play a large enough role in our own spiritual formation. Uh, the Beatitudes are subversive. They are kind of an upside-down way of living that challenges the political and social order of Jesus' day and of our own day. And uh, they ought to be a key part of our discipleship. Verses 1 and 2 say that Jesus sat down to instruct his disciples. This is a message for those who follow him about living in his kingdom. Uh, I'm not going to try and cover all of the Beatitudes this morning. Uh, sometimes that gets an amen from the, from the crowd. Uh, but I thought we would uh, make sure we understand what the Beatitudes are and then look at maybe the first two of them together. So let's start by talking about what the Beatitudes are or maybe even better yet, start by talking about what they are not. Beatitudes are not commands. So there's a temptation to read them this way. Become poor in spirit. Become meek. Make peace with others. But Jesus doesn't use imperatives here. He's not giving orders. He's not giving marching orders telling us what to do or what to be. 
Beatitudes are also not conditions. This is another temptation uh, for us to read them this way. If you are poor in spirit, then you will get the kingdom of heaven. If you are pure in heart, then you will see God. And the implication is, so you better get to it or else. But Jesus also doesn't speak here in conditional clauses, in if-then kind of sentences. He isn't giving us requirements that we better meet before the hammer drops on us. So if Beatitudes aren't commands, and if they're not conditionals, what are they then? Well, they're blessings from the king. We, we need to talk about this word blessed for a second. A lot of commentators will tell you uh, that another way to translate it is happy or fortunate. I think the problem with happy is that for us, happiness is primarily a subjective feeling. If you're happy, you are smiling. Uh, if you're blessed, God is smiling. It's less about your subjective feeling than it is about God's objective favor to you. Blessed means God welcomes you. God is for you. God comforts you and cares for you so that you experience real human flourishing regardless of your circumstances. And so the form of a beatitude is not an imperative, it's not a conditional, it's a declaration. It's like, congratulations, despite sinning up a storm and breaking all kinds of promises and being broken and empty, God still smiles on you, welcomes you, comforts you, satisfies you. And as such, Beatitudes then become invitations to think about the best way of being and living in the world. Invitations to think about the best way of being and living in the world, and then to pursue it. So Jesus is preaching a sermon, and here is how he begins, not by commanding people, not by burdening them with the conditions they better meet or else. He begins by blessing people and giving them a surprising portrait of what the life that brings true, breast, excuse me, true blessing actually looks like. So let's look at the first beatitude then together. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, it's not a command. Be poor in spirit. It's not a condition. If you are poor in spirit, it's a surprising declaration. God smiles on the people who are poor in spirit. Are you poor in spirit? Congratulations. God welcomes you. Luke records this beatitude as simply, blessed are the poor, which puts the stress kind of on the economics of things. Matthew is focusing not just on economics uh, and economic impoverishment, but on a kind of spiritual impoverishment. I think we know that to be poor is to be 
without means. It's to be unable to provide for yourself. Uh, you are dependent. You need outside help. Uh, to be poor in spirit means that's what you are spiritually. Your spiritual condition is that you are without means, weak, powerless. You cannot survive without help from the outside. One person calls it the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit is not what we would write if we were writing Beatitudes. Uh, here's what we would write. Blessed are those who are climbing higher and higher up on the spiritual ladder. They will eventually reach heaven. Blessed are those who abound and overflow in spiritual riches, who lead Bible studies, serve as church officers, and maybe even get ordained as pastors. God loves their effort. Jesus says, Blessed are those who know spiritual poverty and confess it. They are already part of my kingdom. No one climbs their way into the kingdom of heaven. You get down on your knees, beat your breast, and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's poverty of spirit. I like the person who said this about the beatitude. You could translate it, blessed, well, not really translate it, but you could paraphrase it. Blessed are those who are not very good at being Christians. In our own lives, we reject poverty of spirit individually. We live with uh, an attitude, a posture of superiority. We always think that we are better and smarter than everyone else. Have you ever noticed how on the freeway, every person driving slower than you is an idiot, and every person driving faster is reckless? Have you ever noticed how every person to your political left is too liberal, and every person to your political right is too conservative? It's comical until you realize just how much we resist poverty of spirit. I am the center. I see things clearly. I alone know what the best way forward is. What does poverty of spirit look like corporately in a community of faith? Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine says this, the poor in spirit recognize they are both the beneficiaries of the help of others and part of a system in which they pay it forward and help those who they can. In other words, the poor in spirit say, I need other people, and they also say, other people need me. They recognize their dependence on others and others' dependence upon them. I think in most church families, some people are happy to help others, but won't receive help. Others may receive help, but never get out of their own bubble or safety zone to really pour their lives into others. Maybe they've closed off their hearts to the risk 
and disappointment of really investing in other people. Both lose out on what Jesus calls blessedness. Jesus says this dynamic of receiving and giving is the blessedness of life in the kingdom. It's not a means to an end. I don't do it because I'm trying to get into heaven. I'm doing it because it is the life of the kingdom of heaven. What is the blessed life? Is it being someone who is all put together, who is totally self-sufficient, who doesn't need anyone or anything? Jesus says it's the opposite. And it's the poor in, in spirit who experience true blessedness. They have nothing, and yet they have everything that matters. Rich in faith, possessors of the kingdom. It is a blessing to know in life in what sense you are actually wealthy and in what sense you are truly poor. Uh, poverty of spirit is good news. Stop thinking about the things that you've done for which you can't forgive yourself and stop thinking about the things which you've done which you're really proud about. Neither your worst deeds nor your best deeds define your relationship to God. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless flee to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's poverty of spirit. One more, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is a natural reaction to loss. And so if Beatitudes are divine congratulations, this hardly seems like a reason for congratulating anyone. Uh, yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Sometimes it can be helpful to note what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, blessed are those who mope. Blessed are those who have a long, sad face, who never smile or have fun or laugh. Sometimes you have to point this out when there are Calvinists in the room. You know, we have a reputation. Uh, there is a difference between mourning and moping, uh, or there's a difference between woe and woe is me. So one is the righteous response of a heart to a sin-cursed world, and one is the unrighteous response of the heart that is focused and turned in on itself. Blessed are those who mourn is actually not inconsistent with joy and rejoicing, because in the Bible, joy and sadness are not opposites. They can exist together. Blessed are those who mourn what? Well, maybe you notice that in the Beatitude, the verb mourn doesn't have an object. We are not, at the start, expressly told what we are mourning. And I think on some level, the simple fact of being heartbroken and grief-stricken is a blessing. Because the Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Grief draws the eye and the grace of the Lord. When we are in deep sadness, we find that we are 
deep in the marvelous hands of the loving Lord, as the hymn puts it. And that's a tremendous blessing. Uh, mourning is also a blessing because not everyone knows how to mourn. A, a heart that knows how to mourn is a heart that has known how to love. And something is wrong with us, something is missing in our hearts and in our understanding of life and the life that God wants for us if we are unable to mourn or grieve. Uh, I'm going to make a side note here. I, I have a thesis about the world that we live in right now. I believe that one reason that some people are so angry uh, you know, in our current cultural climate. One reason that some people get so angry is that they don't know how to mourn. Uh, it's easier to be angry than it is to be broken-hearted. And so the angriest people that I have known are people who could not mourn. Uh, they couldn't mourn that their lives were full of certain disappointments or failures or sadnesses. And because they couldn't mourn, they started to burn things down. Uh, their inability to mourn in one area of life made them disproportionately angry about things in another area of life. If you are an angry person, you need the blessing of knowing how to mourn. Uh, don't, don't forget that shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Jesus never hid or suppressed his, uh, excuse me, his emotions. He embraced sorrow as a way of experiencing intimacy with his heavenly Father. Uh, and um, mourning in that sense, in and of itself, can be a blessing. But I do think, briefly, we can say there are two things in particular about which we are to mourn. Uh, first, I think we can certainly say we should mourn sin in our lives, the first beatitude uh, and the second beatitude, I think, are connected. So if you are poor in spirit, you know something about yourself. If you are mourning, you feel something about yourself. To be poor in spirit is to admit that we are spiritually beggars. To mourn is to let that admission take deep root in our souls. Uh, if we've come to terms with our spiritual poverty, uh, we, we will mourn. We will mourn our lack of intimacy with God. We'll mourn the sin that separates us from fellowship with Him. We'll mourn our besetting sins, you know, our favorite sins. Everyone's is different, but we all know what they are, that sin that gets you every time that makes you say with Paul, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. Uh, in our weakness, in our failure, when we are staring at how sin got the upper hand in our lives again, we encounter something real about our fallen existence and we mourn it. Uh, and that is a blessing. But the second thing that I think we can say that we should be mourning uh, is we should mourn the condition of God's people. I think that Jesus, with this beatitude, 
has a specific Old Testament passage in mind. And I think he's actually in this beatitude reflecting on a passage from Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus read when uh, he went into the synagogue and announced uh, his ministry, the beginning of his ministry. It's the passage that starts this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then the passage makes clear who the brokenhearted are. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Um, to comfort those who mourn in Zion. Zion is a poetic term for Jerusalem, and Isaiah is speaking about those who mourn over the destruction of Jerusalem. And mourning in the Bible often has to do with mourning over the state of the people of God. Another one would be Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. We sat down and mourned when we remembered Zion. Or think of Jesus himself lifting up his eyes on Jerusalem and weeping over it because the things that made for peace were hidden from them because he wanted to gather the children of Jerusalem like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but they would not come. Mourning for the condition of the people of God. What does it mean for us to mourn the states of the people of God? I'll give you a couple things that come to my mind. Mourn the divisions and conflicts and disrupted relationships over COVID and politics. Mourn the church's damaged witness because of compromises with nationalism. Mourn the church's lack of concern about justice, the oppressed, and the poor. Mourn the ways in which the church's love for the world has failed or even turned into anger or judgment. We should mourn those kinds of things and be brokenhearted about them. When we mourn our sin, and when we mourn the state of God's people, there is a blessing that comes. God comforts us. There is an experience of kindness from the Lord, so great, so personal, so tailor-made for our heart's particular pains, that we will count our seasons of mourning to have been a blessing because it has enabled us to experience God's special comfort. Jesus' intention in this beatitude is not to minimize our mourning. Oh, it's not really that bad because, you know, like, I'll comfort you and take care of it. Uh, it's just the opposite. Jesus is allowing us to know sorrow in its full depths, to mourn deeply and truly 
because we also know beyond a doubt that there is a comfort that comes from the heart of God and one that will ultimately swallow up all pain and secure uh, grace-filled worship and adoration. Uh, comfort is not a feeling. Uh, comfort is the presence and the grace of a Redeemer. Comfort is a person who draws near to you and meets you in your mourning, who hears your cries for help, who comes to you in saving mercy and wraps his arms of eternal love around you. Comfort is a person who delivers you from the power and presence of sin, now and ultimately once and for all. A person who will restore his people and remove their shame because he is the one who has swallowed up all mourning in his own resurrection from the dead. Uh, let me try to wrap things up this way. Uh, if we want to go on an adventure with Jesus, we should be prepared to embody his upside-down definitions of the blessed life. Uh, Jesus on this adventure will take us places that demonstrate how spiritually poor we are. We should be prepared for him to lead us into places where we don't have the resources to make it on our own, because those are the places we discover how rich we are and how we are heirs of the kingdom. We should also be prepared for the things that will break our hearts and cause us to mourn, because those are the things that show us that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. The things that show us Jesus can provide comfort in even the darkest of places. Uh, I love the stanza of the hymn, Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. That's blessed are those who mourn. Uh, so the Beatitudes invite you into a new way of being in the world. It's really inviting you into the way of Jesus. I mean, who is this person who doesn't reject poverty of spirit, who doesn't think too highly of himself, as Pastor Nathan has been showing us in Philippians? Who is this person who grieves over the fallen state of the world and of God's people? Well, that's, that's the Lord Jesus himself, the one who was rich but became poor for us, the creator of everything, who became a wandering rabbi who consistently relied on the hospitality and provisions of others to meet his needs, the one who wept at Lazarus' tomb, the one who wept over Jerusalem, the one who wept in Gethsemane as he felt the, the cost of putting the world back to rights. Jesus lives and embodies all of these beatitudes, and part of the reason then that they are a blessing is they put us in touch with him. They put us in fellowship with him. You are poor, and the one who became poor 
for us gives you His kingdom. You are mourning, and the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, comforts you with grace and mercy. Uh, the life that Jesus blesses is indeed the blessed life. Let's enter into His way of living. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you uh, for these Beatitudes which challenge our own uh, conceptions and definitions of what the blessed life really is. Uh, would we respond uh, to your invitation to enter into the true way of blessing as we would embody uh, these Beatitudes? Give us uh, your spirit and your power to live this way, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.